we've got the tools. It's just getting people to the audiologist to utilize those tools so that we can diagnose and treat the hearing loss. Welcome to Hearing Health Today. I'm your host, Craig Sharp. On today's episode, we're discussing the clinical pathways for sensorineural hearing loss with Terry Zwollen, Director of Audiology at Hearing First and co-author of the 6060 Referral Guideline. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you're a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatment for hearing loss. Terry, thanks for joining us on Hearing Health Today. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. Uh, Before we get going, uh, where are you speaking to us from today? Hi, Craig. I'm speaking to you from sunny Ann Arbor, Michigan. Fantastic. And I assume it's been a good summer there in Michigan? It has been a great summer. It's 75 and sunny. It's perfect weather here today. Fantastic. Well, I know some people in different parts of the globe are jealous of that weather in in Michigan, Um, certainly from some of our listeners in Australia. Before we dive into some of the clinical work that you've been working on, on clinical pathways and the 6060 referral criteria, I wanted to just um, rewind to the beginning of your career because you've had a, a storied a career uh, at the University of Michigan and in audiology and just understand from you um, what actually inspired you to become an audiologist in the first place? Oh, that's a that's such a fun question. Um, it, in high school, I was a park leader. And so my job, I got paid to just go play with kids at the park. And there were um, identical twin boys that were both profoundly deaf and they used sign language and I couldn't communicate with them. And I was so intrigued with trying to help them and trying to communicate um, that it really enlightened me to um, deafness. And um, when I went to college, I, I knew I wanted to be an audiologist after that. Wow. So you entered college knowing audiology is what I want to do. This is where, you know, I want to focus my career. Yeah. Well, I knew I wanted to work with hearing loss. I, I don't know I, that I knew specifically what an audiologist was, but uh, I found out pretty quickly. And I went to Purdue and they had a great hearing and speech program. So um, it let me really delve into it. And I, I knew that's what I wanted. And how did you end up at the University of Michigan? So after you finished your degree in audiology, did you then start working at the University of Michigan or how did that work? Yeah, I, I transferred to the university from Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago, which was my first official job. Um, and then I came to Ann Arbor in 1990. So it was a, a long time ago when implants were just starting. Yeah, I was going to say, so how many patients did you have originally uh, at the University of Michigan? And then I know, congratulations, by the way, I know you just retired after 31 years uh, at the University of Michigan. So what was the difference in the program size when you started to when you left? When I started in 1990, we only had about 10 patients. Um, And and then um, as of now, close to 5,000. So it's really, really grown. And how big is the staff grown in that period as well? Oh, goodness. There were like two of us. And um, (laughs) now there's seven plus four speech pathologists. So um, and really just dedicated to cochlear implant work. So you've seen, yeah, massive growth in the industry and the technology as well. Absolutely. Terry, I know you're one of the uh, founding co-chairs of ACIA, and I was wondering if you could just talk to the listeners a little bit about um, how the work at ACIA has evolved and what that organization is focused on from an advocacy perspective today. What are the hot topics of advocacy today in the ACIA world? 
Great. Well, oh my gosh, ACIA has grown so much uh, over the years when it was first started. Um, John Naparco and I uh, founded ACIA together. Um, we got a group of professionals together and it was actually quite kind of scary um, to think about starting an organization like that. But once we got all these amazing people in a room and everybody agreed that it was needed, um, it just took off. Just for folks outside of the United States, could you explain what ACIA is? Sure. So it's the American Cochlear Implant Alliance. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of work around even picking the name for it. Um, <laughs> and uh, what I love about it, it, it includes surgeons, audiologists, speech language pathologists. Um, it includes patients and parents. It includes all of us that work together uh, for cochlear implants. And um, we work on education and advocacy and improving clinical care. So ACIA takes on all of that. Um, and so their advocacy has run anywhere from improving outcomes or actually changing indications for Medicare, which we've been working on for quite some time. And we're hoping to get to the end of that soon. Um, working with children in hearing loss, a lot of state by state work with Medicaid, um, yeah. as well as work with Medicare. Uh, they put on the uh, annual meetings that bring together professionals in the field. So we all learn from each other. Um, there's so much that goes on with their website and their uh, state advocates that uh, are through ACIA. Sure. It's a great organization. How has the advocacy work evolved from when you originally started as a founding co-chair to now? Like how have the topics, you know, changed that that, that organization and, and you as part of that are, are focused on? Well, I think at first it was... Um, really focused very small because we had just this small board. Um, but then as we started to recruit state advocates, it got bigger and bigger. And as the meetings got bigger and more popular to attend and yeah. um, it, it has just grown. So it's, it's become nationwide. It's become um, coordination internationally yeah. with other organizations, which um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. Uh, and so it's really become recognized as an important source of information. It puts together research funding for different research projects. And then also best practices. They talk about best practices and important statements that insurers recognize yeah. for rehabilitation of children and adults. So it's really just a group of great professionals putting their heads together and making a big difference in so many different ways related to cochlear implants. Terry, I was hoping to dive in with you about some of the clinical pathways and the referral pathways that exist for the diagnosis of sensory neural hearing loss and where they're lacking. I know you've done a lot of work in this area, and I was wondering if you could speak to us a little bit about what the current standards are and how they're evolving. Great. I'd love to talk about that because I think, especially in the United States, we have so much room for improvement just in terms of diagnosing um, any type of hearing loss, not even necessarily, you know, candidates for cochlear implants. And I think there's so much work to be done just with general healthcare providers, um, like our primary care physicians. Yeah. I recently had my, you know, annual healthcare examination and they never asked me about my hearing. Yeah. Uh, primary care docs don't tend to do that. And I really wish that they did, because if, if they did, there's a lot of people that would say, you know, I'm not hearing all mm -hmm. that. Well, where should I go? And so uh, there isn't a really good referral pathway for yeah. hearing in general. 
I think um, when you have more significant of a hearing loss, such as implant candidates, they've probably been seen by an audiologist. Um, so um, they have, they're established in the hearing care sort of network, um, but we're still seeing that they're not being sent on for appropriate next steps yeah. in technology. So um, we're doing a lot of work to try to improve that pathway for both children and adults, um, but we have a lot of work still left to do. Why do you think that primary care providers don't ask about hearing loss as frequently as they maybe should? I think it's it's invisible, right? Mm-hmm. So there isn't something it isn't something that um, you can physically see on someone. Um, and I just think historically it isn't an area. You know, children have hearing screenings sometimes at their doctor's offices, sometimes in their school, but for adults especially, it just hasn't been in the the wheelhouse of the primary care physicians. Yeah. I come from the world of diabetes previously, and I know, you know, there's a, a gold standard measure of how in control your diabetes is. It's uh, HbA1c. Everyone knows that. Everyone um, looks at that, uh, often orders those labs. Is there anything equivalent in hearing for that initial diagnosis of hearing loss? And if not, what could that or should that look like? There's a, a variety of tests that we can use as audiologists. I think for the primary care physicians, and I should clarify, there's some that do ask. I just yeah. Um, yeah. Haven't, haven't seen them personally. <laughs> yeah. um, but I've worked with some here at, at U of M that are actually trying to change that. So, so that's really very important. Um, I think for primary care physicians, just asking, do you have any problems with your hearing would, would be huge. Um, yeah. and, and that could open a dialogue. For audiologists, um, we have very clear ways of, of diagnosing uh, hearing loss and um, the audiogram, as we all know it, which gives yeah. us a measure of, of basic hearing function. Um, the audiogram is great. It'll tell us what sounds an individual can or cannot hear, but it's only a very small part of the picture because we really have to evaluate what someone does with the hearing that they have. And so the big important part of that is speech recognition. So um, if I can hear, but can I understand and can I understand well enough to communicate or do I need some assistive or hearing technology that will help me hear better and um, help me communicate better? So we've got the tools. Um, It's just getting um, getting people to the audiologist to utilize those tools so that we can diagnose and treat the hearing loss and, and just make everything better for the patient. Once folks do actually make it into the hearing channel, so maybe they're, they're seeing an audiologist either at a medical facility or at a, a hearing aid clinic, do those facilities typically have the equipment or the tools to do the testing that's necessary to, to make a diagnosis around whether someone might need an escalation of therapy? Absolutely. So basically looking at an audiogram, um, an audiologist can tell what sounds they are and are not hearing accurately, tell if they um, should have a hearing aid, if they need something stronger than a hearing aid, such as a cochlear implant, um, if they need a bone conduction device. They're really able to diagnose the type of hearing loss, the severity of the hearing loss, and then recommend appropriate treatment. It's getting them in the door. It's what's needed. I know you've done some work on the 60-60 referral criteria, and I was just curious if, if you might expand a little bit on some of the research that you've done in defining 60-60. Like, what is that for our listeners, and what does that mean in uh, the course of diagnosing different degrees of hearing loss? Thanks for asking about that, because I, I love talking about the 60-60, and um, 
basically what happened was um, we do a lot of outreach uh, to professionals and the most frequently asked question is how do I know when I should refer a patient for an implant? And in all honesty, I really didn't know what to say. And I didn't have any evidence to back it up. We'd kind of say, well, when they've got a moderate to profound hearing loss, and they say, what about speech recognition? And we see patients with variety of speech recognition skills. So we came back to the clinic and started looking at our data. And we examined preoperative data for, I think it was 529 adults that we saw over about three years. And it worked out perfect because almost exactly half were candidates and half were not candidates. So that gave us a really good ability to to look at what we decided would be good referral to help separate candidates from non-candidates. And we wanted to look at measures that audiologists really use. The problem is when we determine if someone's a candidate for an implant, we're using sentences with appropriate hearing aids on the patient. If you talk to most audiologists, they don't do sentence testing on their patients. They will do a hearing test and that's pretty much it. And that hearing test will include the audiogram and word testing without a hearing aid. So just, you know, under insert earphones. So we looked at the measures most commonly used, which is the audiogram. And then Mm -hmm. we also looked at um, the speech recognition, the word recognition score that they use. And we found that 90% of our candidates ended up having a pure tone average, which is the average of the thresholds at 500, 1,000 and 2,000 hertz, um, an average of 60 dB or greater. And then when we looked at their speech recognition scores, 90% had a score on word recognition of 60% or less. And does it matter which um, speech test you're using for that word recognition score? Great question, because for us, we took all comers because our referral sources, some were using NU6, some were using CNC, some were using CIDW22. So we took whatever was there. And um, sometimes it's live voice, sometimes it's recorded. Mm. Um, But we were just pretty happy that the 60 popped up and it popped up in both places because we thought, wow, that makes it easy to remember. And um, we liked the sound of the 6060 and it made sense to us and it confirmed what we were telling people that that group looks like they're good for referral. And the thing is to remember they're referring. It's a recommendation for referral. It's not a recommendation to implant. Yes. That requires additional testing. It's just getting them in the door that's so important. And we really think the 6060 will help with that. We had heard in a previous podcast that even if a lot of people are referred for evaluation, they may not be a candidate now, but the vast majority of them will be a candidate in one to three years. Absolutely. And we always recommend they come back in a year sooner if their hearing drops. And we found in that study that quite a few of those people came back year after year and sometimes one year later, sometimes three years later, they became candidates. And I think that's so important because there's research to show that if you provide an implant as soon as someone becomes a candidate, rather than waiting years upon years till they become extremely profound or lose all auditory function, that they're going to do best. So we can catch them quickly and their outcomes are going to be better. So I I never feel like um, someone coming that's not a candidate is a bad thing. So I think um, it's just really good and a win-win all around for the candidates and the non-candidates when they uh, participate in a candidacy eval. And does this 60-60 criteria apply to both pediatrics and adults or is this primarily focused on adults? 
So our data was just on adults. Yeah. Okay. So um, it, it really wouldn't apply to children and they have different indications. They're a little bit stricter. Yeah. Um, I think for an older child, absolutely. It could probably um, withstand the test of time um, as a as a good guide for older children. So I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier, because you had mentioned that a lot of audiologists in the, the hearing aid channel aren't doing um, a lot of speech recognition testing. Do you know why that is? Like, why is that not a normal part of their workflow? Well, I, I think sometimes it's a lot to do with time. Yeah. Um, and they'll base a lot on the feedback that the mm-hmm. the hearing aid user provides to them. Um, and I think, too, that they'll just take that feedback and they they don't have time to put them in the test booth. Implant audiologists are, are probably accused of over-testing sometimes sure. because yeah. we do put them in the booth all the time, um, but it's also a surgical intervention and we're, we're always checking um, to make certain that everything is optimized for our patients. So I think it's just been sort of habit that it never started that way with hearing aids, um, but it did start that way with implants and we've continued to do it. And there's this big disconnect between how we test and how they test that makes it confusing as to when they should refer. So we have a number of audiologists that listen to the podcast of all different flavors, you know, some that are primarily doing hearing aids, others that are primarily doing uh, Baja and acoustics devices, others that are doing CI, some that are doing all three. <laughs> so I'm just curious for, for folks that don't actively see or refer patients for cochlear implants, um, what would be your recommendation about how to implement this 60-60 referral criteria into their practice? Well, one of the things I, I like about the 60-60 is that um, it's evidence-based. Mm-hmm. It's published on a very large group. And we were really strict on um, looking at the scores. And I think sometimes audiologists are um, really worried about sending someone maybe a couple of hours away for an implant eval yeah. and them not being a candidate. Um, but now they can say, you know what? You meet these criteria and they, they can actually blame me instead yeah. of uh, <laughs> yeah. the clinician if um, if they travel two hours and they're, they're not a candidate. But it kind of just gives them sort of a guide and a reason and say, you know, look, you, you meet these criteria and, and you'll probably learn from this appointment and you might be a candidate. So um, in that regard, I think it just provides some substantiation for why they're sending them. And it's um, it's evidence based based on, you know, um, really good data. And the 6060 was based on the data that we collected a lot from the referring sources. So yeah. um, it really comes from from them, for them, um, in my opinion. I I do think one of the areas for the implant audiologists that we don't do well, and I'm not speaking for everyone, um, (laughs) is communicating back to the hearing aid clinicians. Um, And we've really tried to improve on that uh, here at U of M so that we can communicate better so that we can say that was a great referral. We're moving forward with an implant so that that clinician yes. isn't saying, whatever happened to John Doe that I sent to you? Yeah. Did, did he get an implant or not? And how's he doing? And um, I think if we communicate better, they'll be more likely to send us more patients. Um, and they'll be more likely to learn about what's a good referral, what's what's um, not so good of a referral, um, and learn from us about the outcomes of the patients that they've sent us. I used to work in, you know, dermatology, endocrinology, other areas, and it seems like in those specialties, it's just a lot more common that the uh, specialist or the the provider that's receiving the referral, you know, would send a consult note back around um, 
did XYZ with the patient, like this is the next level of therapy. But I've noticed that is not quite as commonplace in CI. Do you know why that is the case? Is there something we could do to improve that? Uh, you know, I'm not sure why. I think um, sometimes we just keep doing things the same way yeah. and um, we don't improve on on them like we should. I think there are solutions, I think, with electronic medical yeah. records. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've implemented where um, for audiology, like the physicians, it will automatically generate a referral letter that will have our entire candidacy right. eval results in it, making a big difference for us. Now, I, I don't run into professionals and have them say, you know, you never got back to me on that patient. Yeah. Now they say, oh, my gosh, thank you. I saw your whole report. It made great sense. And um, thank you for sending it. So I think uh, communication is key and we, we can all do a better job both ways. So um, yes. I think it's, it's important. So the tools are there. It's just a matter of um, making sure that, you know, following through on the closing the loop of the, the referral. Exactly. That, that we use them and that we, we communicate. And um, I, think it, I think it'll make a big difference. I want to switch tact briefly. Um, what is the ICP? Could you talk a little bit about that? And how do you think the ICP will impact the clinical pathway? Yeah, the ICP or the International Consensus Panel um, mm-hmm. was really a, a, a phenomenal group of people that that were put together to, um, to look at internationally, um, to look at publications, because we really wanted it to be evidence-based. And we had sort of a, a mission to look at um, in terms of what kinds of claims or statements can we make uh, about cochlear implants? And through those statements, can we develop a standard of care? So it was pretty intensive with reviewing a lot of different publications and rating them in terms of number of subjects and um, contributions to science. And so uh, we would all kind of Uh, get together uh, after all those ratings and then review them and and agree on them. And then it came up with a a group of statements uh, about the literature and really gives a nice view, overview of historically where we are currently with cochlear implants and still where gaps are that we need to go um, in terms of adults. It it really hasn't dealt with children yet, but for at least adults, it gave us a really good picture of where we are and where we still need to go. And how do you think the results from that consensus paper, how does that relate to the 60-60 referral criteria you mentioned previously? Um, Well, it was published in JAMA, which was great. It's a a great publication. Um, And in the ICP, it identifies some of the weaknesses in getting patients uh, from the referral sources into the clinics. And so I think it's a sort of a nice partnership in that they're both saying the same thing. Um, They're saying that there's a a disconnect that patients um, aren't being seen. Um, They're also showing us that early intervention is better for adults, as similar as it is to children, uh, that implants work, uh, that they're proven. Um, Whereas the 6060, I think, can partner with that because it can help solve the mystery of when someone should be referred and yes. maybe just make okay. it easier for people to look at an audiogram and go, oh, 60-60, let's send you on and see what happens. Sure. So from an ICP perspective, it's outlining in broad strokes sort of who would be the right type of adult candidate for a cochlear implant. Um, but the 60-60 is maybe more of that impetus to action. Like, hey, okay, if I'm a referring provider, 
yeah, I guess to answer your question earlier, um, how do I know like when to refer? Like what is actually this, this, you know, this magic number that I need to hit before I send quote unquote, a, a good referral to an implant audiologist? Yeah. And I, I love when I talk to a clinician and um, they'll say, oh, I, I sent someone to you because they met the 6060. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. Somebody's, <laughs> somebody's really using it. And um, yeah. I, and I think they just like the ease of it. Um, and, and it makes sense. And the, the really great thing is typically when someone comes for an implant eval, we verify their hearing aid fitting. Yeah. And sometimes these patients haven't been checked by their audiologist in like seven years. And we go, Oh, your, your hearing aid really isn't well fit. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so we'll put a, a clinic aid on them. We'll find out if they're not a candidate. We send them back to their dispenser and we uh -huh. recommend new hearing aids. Um, but we still want to see them back in a year or two. Um, but it really goes both ways for just improving hearing care because some people are putting that off and they don't want to buy a hearing aid if they're going to get an implant. Um, but sometimes we say, no, you're not an implant candidate. You really need better amplification. And so that's beneficial in that way as well. Um, it, it, so it really goes both ways in both directions. So in different parts of the world, hearing aids are covered by health insurance or by health funds that are administered by the government. And I know there's uh, talk of legislation in the United States about potentially covering hearing aids under Medicare. I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you think that would impact hearing care in general and how would it impact the referral pathways to um, cochlear implants, for example? Yeah, and it, I, I think there are good points about it. Um, actually, President Biden was just... Uh, on the radio uh, the other day talking about how hearing aids that cost thousands of dollars will now just cost hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's really up to, to audiologists and hearing aid dispensers to, to help manage that, to make certain that they're good hearing aids and appropriate hearing aids that are being fit on, on our patients. Um, I think it's a good thing. There's so many people that uh, are not seeking hearing treatment. And I think being able to give them back um, good hearing or even improving hearing will set them on the path of just improved hearing and will facilitate um, better outcomes and probably more referrals down the implant path as well. Uh, so I, I view it as a, a good thing. I think it will increase awareness and it will increase utilization of hearing technology. You mentioned previously that sometimes you see patients that haven't been checked by their audiologist, their hearing aid audiologist for several years. Do you think there's a cost barrier to that? Or is that just sometimes people don't go back for whatever reason for a number of years? Just curious, like if there is maybe an economic element to that as well. Yeah, I think it's both. I think probably a lot of times it is driven economically, um, especially in older adults. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of our patients who have hearing aid benefits that aren't even aware that they have hearing aid benefits. Sure. And so when they come and we check their benefits, it's like, oh, no, you have like $1,500 covered. Yeah. And like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think knowledge is power and getting them in the right hands of the right professional that can help them navigate that makes it less scary and um, just educates them about about the potential that they have to improve their own hearing. So I, I do think sometimes it's financial. Sometimes I think they don't even think about it. They just keep wearing these same hearing aids, not recognizing that their hearing has gotten worse and that maybe their hearing aids need to be sure. adjusted. Uh, so I think there's a variety of reasons, but I definitely feel like cost probably plays, plays a role. 
Building on some of the comments that you mentioned earlier, where there might not be as much communication back and forth between the hearing aid channel and the cochlear implant channel as there could be, besides sending better consult notes and better referral notes to and from, do you think there is anything else that we as an industry could do to help facilitate better communication and coordination between those different care channels? I do. I think, honestly, there's so many different indications now for cochlear implants um, mm-hmm. that it's hard for people to keep track of all of the changes that have gone on. And honestly, if you ask some audiologists or hearing healthcare professionals, there's a lot that will still tell you that the people who are candidates for an implant are those that have no usable hearing. And that's no longer the case. Uh, we used to say if somebody could call in and schedule their own appointment, that they weren't a candidate because sure. candidates can't talk on the phone preoperatively. Mm-hmm. It's not the case any longer. Um, right. There's caption phones. Um, they can hear well enough to get by under structured conversations. So they, they can, and they might still be a candidate, but that's how much the expansion has happened. One thing I would add is is with the referral sources, um, when I give talks of, about this, one of the things I mention is how important the counseling um, and the communication that the referral source has to the patient is. Yeah. We, we see sometimes that um, even though they have good intentions that they, they might review or, or talk to the patient about an implant as a last resort. Yeah rather than a next best step or uh, the next alternative or next step in their journey. Um, and really, it's the, the dispensing audiologist that can really calm the fears and counsel them about this is what's going to be involved in an implant evaluation. This is why I'm sending you. I really have maximized your outcomes with, with a hearing aid. Um, and I think they play such a vital role. Mm-hmm. Um, they've usually managed these people for several years and these people trust them. And I think part of that trust is um, providing them with good information about the next step and making sure that they're providing them with the best technology possible, even if they personally can't be the one to provide that. So um, I find patients are so, so grateful when an audiologist will refer them for an implant and they experience better hearing because of that. They send all their friends to that dispensing audiologist (laughs) because they, they say they're really, they really care about you as a person and not about someone that they just want to sell a hearing device to. So, sure. um, and audiologists are a great group of people that we're really motivated about caring for our patients, all of us, uh, diagnosticians, hearing aid audiologists, implant audiologists, therapists. Um, we're really all driven by the same thing. So um, I think that when they look at the knowledge that they have um, or that they need to give the patient what they need, then I, I think that's when we provide the best care. And how do you think as an industry, as, you know, sort of a group of uh, committed professionals, we could work to get the ICP and the 6060 criteria more adopted by the medical societies, like in the US, the AMA, or maybe the Society for Gerontologists? Where do you think the work is that needs to be done to help some of that referral criteria or that awareness around the referral criteria become more mainstream in some of the uh, like primary care channels, for example? That's a a great question. Um, I think there are a lot of separate entities that are trying to increase referrals and um, increase awareness 
improve access. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the implant manufacturers play a very strong role in that as well. Um, and they support a lot of the endeavors and, and their work is so important as well. And I think um, there's a lot of ways that we all work together with that, but individual clinicians need to get out there and speak outside of the implant meetings. Yes. <laughs> at AAA, at gerontology meetings, at PCP meetings. Um, it, it really, uh, we need to get the word out. And I think individual clinicians presenting individual and evidence-based data is valuable, important, and, and respected uh, by those other professionals to, to be able to, to listen and learn from clinicians actively working with those those patients. So you've spent 31 years at the University of Michigan, and you've moved on to a new role at Hearing First. I'm curious um, if you could tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing sort of uh, post-retirement at uh, from University of Michigan and into your new role at Hearing First. Well, it's, it's, it's fun to talk about. Um, someone referred to this as my encore career. <laughs> your so. encore career, yes. <laughs> so I'm ready for my encore. Um, and <laughs> I haven't really officially started yet, so I think once I dive in, I'll, I'll know more about this great opportunity. Um, and Hearing First um, is supported by Obercotter Foundation, and it really works to improve outcomes for children with hearing loss, and it uh, uh, does a lot of focus on families as well as education for professionals. So um, what I love about this role is that I can take what we've, we're talking about and um, improving access for adults and children and spread it out more just across all of hearing loss, but still maintain it with cochlear implants. And um, it's sort of an open slate in terms of audiology. There's a a lot to be done with um, Eddie, with early on. Um, There's so much to do where we're going to look where hearing first can make a difference with that. So we're hoping to um, improve access to implants and access to hearing aids and uh, awareness among people pediatric audiologists about cochlear implants for children, uh, young adults. So uh, I'm I'm hoping that I can take all of this and build it even bigger. Well, I commend you because there's there's a lot of work to do and it's really admirable work in terms of advocacy and awareness around hearing loss in general, whether it's in the pediatric population or the adult population. Well, thank you. Maybe you can have me back in a year and I can tell you about (laughs) all the great things. That, that Hearing First is doing, because I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping to have a lot to say. Yeah, fantastic. Terry, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Craig. It's been my pleasure to, to speak with you. I, I love talking about this topic, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, absolutely. You're welcome back in a year's time, and we can talk about some of the work that you'll be doing at Hearing First. That sounds great. We've received some great feedback from our listeners around the world. Please continue to share your perspectives with us so we can create the most engaging podcast for hearing health professionals. Click the link in the episode notes to share your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.